Greetings, love to each of you this morning. Also in the name of Jesus. Glad we can be here. The presence of God enjoyed the worship so far tremendously. The inspiration to our hearts as we're together, worshiping at the footstool of our great God. Today's message is not an easy one to preach. And I would have rather chosen something else. But with the help of God, I will share the burden that was laid on my heart. Turn with me to for a text to Romans 1. Entitled the message, The Wrath of God Revealed. The Wrath of God Revealed. I'm going to begin with this verse. We're going to go other places. But also come back to this shortly and read some more verses here. Romans 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God revealed. Just a clarification there when it says that it is upon those who hold the truth and unrighteousness. That word hold there means to suppress. It means to hold down so that they know the truth, but they suppress it. They don't speak the full truth. They hide it. Now, this subject, we think about the wrath of God is a subject that we don't hear probably often enough in our time in which we live. And I'm going to explain why I believe this. This is a sermon that you will almost never hear in most so-called Christian churches today. And in thinking of this recently, it became clear to me that that we possibly have also succumbed to the pressures uh, and the deceptions somewhat of the last days. Now, let me clarify this. What we're going to be sharing this morning is not in any way to take away from the greatness of God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his grace. The first song we sang this morning in our worship, beautiful hymn about the love of God. And and this morning, we could preach a lot about that, and we do. And so uh, what we're talking about is not to take away from that. We're going to talk about what even may seem like a contradiction, which I do not believe it is. But we live in a time of spiritual deception where so much emphasis is put on the love and grace of God 
that I think it has, it can distort our view and it has distorted many people's view of the entire character of God in its totality. It really is like one-sided preaching if we're not careful. And I don't think we're necessarily guilty of this. I've preached the messages on it, but I, I did feel guilty in the sense or asked God for forgiveness if I have failed to portray from the scriptures the, the, the total character of God as we see him portrayed to us. And the other thing that goes into this is, I refer to it as part of the deception of the last days, because that if the devil can, if the devil can get us to have a wrong view of God in this area, it's going to result in mass, mass spiritual casualties. And I believe that some of the spiritual casualties that you and I are familiar with are a result of not understanding the wrath of God. And so that's the burden that I feel this morning in this message. Far too many view God as an indulgent old grandfather that will in the end overlook our wrongdoing and give us heaven after all. That's how many Christians view, view, view God. And, but that's not what the scripture teaches. And we're going to be looking at that. We know God is a God of love. We know that he's a God of mercy. We know he's a God of grace. But the Bible clearly teaches that he's a God of anger and a God of wrath. And we have to keep that whole totality of his character and person in view. Now, the other thing that is very positive, we're going to come back to this probably at the end of the message, and that is that we only understand, I believe, the depth of our forgiveness. We only understand the depth of God's mercy to us as individuals and and His grace. We will only understand the extent of His sacrifice for us in light of his wrath. We can so easily feel somehow that God is obligated to do something for us, that God was obligated to save us. And we can assume that we're pretty good people and and somehow everything's going to just all come out okay. And again, we know that God has mercy and forbearance and, and all those things. But in the end, is he just going to be able to just say, well, I know you were kind of a you know, bad person here and there, and you didn't do some things right, but you know, I'm just going to forgive you anyway. See, that's the concept of a lot of Christians, that somehow God doesn't really mean what he says, and therefore they can justify all kinds of things in the name of Christianity. And people are, are duped into this. They're, they're deceived into this to, under, to somehow think that, oh, in the end, it's just going to be okay. You know, after all, God's a God of love and, you know, and mercy and forgiveness. And God understands, you know, my weakness. God understands. He's just going to let it all go. But the Bible says in this passage that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men. Now let's read some of these verses. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it unto them. But see, they suppress it because it is revealed in them. They can, you know, it, the evidence is there. But they, 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 don't, they don't allow the truth to, to change them. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Which means that creation itself, the visible, or we could say the invisible things of the creation are actually understood, or the invisible things about God are, can be understood by the creation. And what I find very interesting is now, nowadays, in the last few years especially, there's this, this common thought that, that true science is, is, uh, is, is um, that true science cannot be tainted by religion. And they actually would believe, many people would believe that actually if you're a, a true Christian and have a belief system in God as a creator God, that that is not science, and then you can't really be understand science from a Christian perspective. But the interesting thing is that it is Christianity that gave science to the world. Now, you know, we understand science because the Bible is, it, it, this is a science book. But, you know, but the, now the belief has shifted. And so it is saying here in verse 20 that you can understand something about God because he's given us all this evidence in creation. And the more you study science, the more you see God. And that's why they, of course, hold to evolution and all kinds of other thoughts and ideas and theories, because they don't want to recognize the creator God. Like verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That sounds interesting. That sounds like today's world. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this, God, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, having the natural, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, 
inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without natural affection, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That's the wrath of God revealed against ungodliness, written almost 2,000 years ago, current to our day. Current to our day. It's what we see. I'm not going to comment a lot on this passage, but except for I'd like to point out three, three things. Well, it's something that is said three times. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. It is that God's threefold response to what is outlined with this ungodliness. Verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. And verse 28, God gave them over. What that means is, from the original language, the Greek word is paradokon which means God abandoned them. God abandoned them. I'm not sure at what point God abandoned someone. But the concept is very frightening. When you think about a line, a line between God's mercy and his wrath a line that man can choose to cross between God's mercy and his wrath. I believe that what it is saying here, whatever point in the sins that are outlined here, which really are really present day, sins of Sodom, sins of the last days, the last days of Sodom, as it were, There's a line that is crossed where God gives them over. You're talking in the Sunday school lesson about God being able to save to the uttermost. And that is all true, except there is a line that is crossed where I believe, you know, the scripture also talks about being given over to a reprobate mind, a line that is crossed between God's mercy and and his wrath. There is the example of Israel, Second Chronicles 36, which is the end of the category of the kings of Israel. And this, this took place just before the carrying away that we have in Jeremiah and Lamentations. And we're going to look at that a little bit later. But this is what God is saying here through the prophet. Second Chronicles 36, 14, Moreover, all the chief of the priests... And the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent unto them by his messengers rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his works, his words, misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people 
till there was no remedy. What that means is, God sent the prophets to the Old Testament Israel. You, know, you have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah especially, the prominent ones who prophesied and said, you can't do this. The temple is defiled. Your worship is defiled. You must repent and return to God. And you know how they just kept hardening their hearts and they would persecute and, and throw Jeremiah into prison and say, you can't talk like that against the king and, and so on. God in his compassion was warning them that this is what is going to happen if you don't change your ways. And the beautiful city of Jerusalem with the beautiful temple that Solomon had built where God came down and and filled the house with his glory. And here God says, you've crossed the line between my mercy and my wrath. And Nebuchadnezzar was on the march. It's an illustration right from the scriptures, the story of God working with his people that helps us to understand this. Now, I'd like to think a little bit. We might come back to that. Tie that in later. Why the struggle with accepting the wrath of God? And there's a part of us all that cringe a little bit at this. It's... It's much more enjoyable to preach about the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. But why this struggle with accepting the wrath of God? There's several objections probably to this that are human. One is we have a tendency to to interpret God's anger and his wrath from a human perspective. And like our anger and our wrath, and so it, would, it could be viewed from a human perspective, which really doesn't do justice to, to who God is in his character. And it can be seen as sort of uncontrolled anger. I said about crossing the line. You know, when we cross the line with our emotions of anger, it usually goes out of control. And that's how we can have a tendency to, to, to interpret God and his anger and his wrath. It almost seems like it's unworthy of God's character, character to, to, to think about him as a God of anger and wrath. It just seems like it degrades God somehow. You know, almost to maybe a, a human level. It's too human. You know, we like to see God up here. But the fact is this morning that we cannot interpret the anger and wrath of God from a human perspective. We must go back to the scriptures and let God tell us what kind of anger and wrath he has. Not us interpreting it from our perspective. I've never read the book. I've read uh, excerpts from the book that Richard Dawkins wrote um, about the God delusion. But that's his characterization of God. You know, that he's, you know, from the Old Testament, you know, he's racist and and even the New Testament, homophobic, and he just goes down a long list of derogatory terms about God. Well, one of these days, Richard Dawkins is going to face that God that he claims does not exist. But I'm not sure how you can spend your life fighting against something that doesn't exist, but that's a question he'll have to answer. But... and so there's that view that somehow it's 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 God God we bring God down 
if we understand his anger and his wrath. And so right with that is, then because it's uncomfortable in a sense for many people, so God is then redefined to fit personal viewpoint. And this can easily happen where, and I think that's where a lot of nominal Christianity is today, and I talked about this at the beginning of the message, where they redefine God and say, well, God is a God of love. He would never send somebody to hell forever. You know, He's a God of love. He's a God of forgiveness. You know, he's tolerant. You know, and, and he's going to, you know, he'll accept everyone. You know, if two men love each other, well, God can accept that. Or, or two women, you know, and, and, you know, God understands all that. He understands, you know, human makeup. And they, they create a God, small g, a God that they want to worship. Rather than the God of heaven who says, this is who I am. This is my character. This is my attributes. You see, and so that is what can happen. And that comes close to us. That's why the Bible continually talks against idolatry. And we think of idolatry as just setting up some idol or something like in some dark corner of the world like they do. But no, idolatry can actually be redefining a God so that we can serve a God that we like to serve, not what the God of heaven says that he is to us. And so the other, another struggle with this whole thing, the, an objection that people have in this concept of the wrath of God, is that it is viewed that God would be cruel. And people sometimes say this, you know, how could a God be so cruel, you know, to punish people forever for doing one little wrong thing? And, th- and arguments like that. You know, God would never do that. And so he's viewed as being cruel if he would be that way. If you think of his anger and his wrath in that perspective. You know, we'll talk about this later too probably, but remember that God's wrath and, and his anger against sin is always a function of his justice. Now, some other people would say, well, that's Old Testament, you know, not a New Testament doctrine. That's not true. The the wrath of God is seen in the New Testament just as much as the Old. It's from cover to cover. Right to the last chapter of the Bible. Another argument against it is, it will turn seekers away. And I believe that in evangelism, we need to talk about the total character of God. We're not trying to just scare people into heaven. But Paul did write and say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What did Christian in his fleeing to the, to the celestial city you know, what, what, what was his message? I thought of that, you know, in the book that John Bunyan wrote, Pilgrim's Progress. His message was, flee from the wrath to come. So while we don't focus entirely only on his wrath, we also focus on his love and mercy and forgiveness and the new birth provision and all that he's done in salvation. 
But the fact is, his wrath is there. And I think that understanding and that realization of his wrath will protect us from evil many times and sin, but also understanding his wrath, and we're going to crisscross this thought, it will always increase our appreciation and uh, thanksgiving for what God has done for us. He has delivered us, as the scripture says, from so great a death. So great a death. And we need to understand that. Think of it this way. Our God is so holy and so loving that we can trust him to tell us who he is in his own words. We don't have to interpret God. We just have to believe what he tells us about himself. Now, another question we could ask is, there a contradiction between God's love and his wrath? Is that a contradiction? That's how sometimes it is posed. Well, if he's a God of love, how can he, be, how can he do this? How can, he be a, how can he be a God of wrath? Does God love the sinner and hate the sin? Sometimes we hear that statement. That God loves the sinner and hates the sin. That's really trying to, that statement, I think we understand what it's trying to say. It's trying to get out over top of what can seem like a contradiction of God's love and his wrath. But there is no contradiction there. They're, they're one and the same. We're going to look at that a little bit more. So does God love the sinner and hate the sin? God will show love to the sinner because he offers salvation to the sinner. But Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. We need to be careful we don't differentiate too much between the sin and the sinner. Because it's not just the sin that's going to be cast into hell, it's the sinner that's going to be cast into hell. See? That's just trying to soften the blow a little bit. So we've got to be careful with that statement. God's wrath is his holy hatred of all that is unholy. God's wrath is his holy hatred for all that is unholy. It is his righteous anger at anything that is unrighteous. And we can say, look at it from this perspective, God's anger is not uncontrollable rage. God's anger is not vindictive bitterness. God's anger is not God losing his temper. The Bible says in more than one place that God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. God would rather show mercy than to show his wrath. Every time you find that. Wrath is God's response, we could say, to sin in the universe. And because God is a holy God, God is a God of love, God is a God of grace, God is a, he's a God of forgiveness, he cannot be that God and overlook sin. You see, the one stands together with the other. There is no contradiction. If God would be careless about sin and indifference, he would not be a holy God, and therefore he would not be trustworthy. He could not offer salvation to us. So the one can't stand without the other. You could say the one is in contrast to the other, but they stand together. 
So in God's response to sin, he cannot simply overlook it. He cannot wink at it. He did in the Old Testament times because he hadn't provided salvation yet. And the Holy Spirit like we have. But he doesn't wink at sin now. Because there's a remedy for sin. There's a provision for sin. He cannot just pretend it's not there. You know, we're tempted to do that as parents sometimes. We don't want the conflict of dealing with an issue with our children. Just kind of ignore it. Hope it goes away. Pretend it didn't exist because we don't want to go take care of it. God doesn't do that. He can't do that. His nature doesn't allow him to do that. Just look, to, to confirm this, just look at what took place on Calvary and in relation to the suffering of the Son of God and all that took place in the 4,000 years before that, roughly, 4,000 years, of God working and leading up to the Messiah coming and giving his life on the cross. The huge, from a human perspective, the huge effort that God went to to save us, which, which meant that Christ had to die as a sinless man on a cross, heaped with scorn and, as it were, wrath, as he bore our sin on the, on the tree. Bible says. That's all that God had to, to do in all that plan of salvation in order to somehow, in his holiness, in his wrath and anger against sin, be able to justify us and forgive us our sin because we deserved eternal death. Every accountable person here this morning you know, we're, we're accountable to God. Yes, we have, you know, the Adamic nature, which came down to us. Every ch- little baby here has that Adamic nature. You know, there's a selfishness that exudes itself as they get a little bit older. Christ died for that in their innocence. They're covered under the blood in their innocence. But when we are no longer innocent, we are accountable. And then we've made decisions of our own. And every one of us have made a decision against God at some point. That's why we needed salvation. We needed forgiveness. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Every accountable person is under the wrath of God. Unless there's the intervention of grace, of God's mercy. And God went to all that extent. Through all those years with Israel and up to the new covenant, like we said in our Sunday school lesson, so that he could save us and forgive us. That shows the level of God's hatred of sin. That it took all of that, as it were, that he would not, that he would be true to his nature and be able to forgive us because Christ took our place in that vicarious sacrifice. Wrath is what happens when holiness meets sin. Wrath is what happens when justice meets rebellion. Wrath is what happens when righteousness meets unrighteousness. Wrath is what happens when perfect good meets pure evil. I'll give you a little bit, just a little illustration maybe of what we're talking about. It's just, it doesn't even come close to it, but suppose 
you were sitting with a group of students eating their lunch. I'm not talking about our school, our schools or anything like that, but just, just visualize with me. A group of children. Here comes a big fellow in, a bit of a bully. Here's this poor little, say, third grader, second grader, or whatever, unwrapping their sandwich. He walks past, smacks it out of their hand onto the floor. You're sitting at the other end of the table. What feelings goes through your heart when you see that? That's righteous indignation, right? That's a little bit what we're talking about in relation to the wrath of God. Righteous indignation. But think of it also this way, in relation to the righteousness of God, as long as God is God, he cannot overlook sin. And that's why whenever we sin, 1 John says, we have the propitiation. As Christ is there, if we respond in forgiveness, he can forgive us again. But that forgiveness always requires going back to the cross. Every time we are forgiven a sin in our lives, and we find the forgiveness of God, in a sense, it always goes back to the blood on Calvary. That's the only way that God can forgive us. It's the only way. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's saying, it's the only way. Jesus Christ is the only way. His shed blood is the only way. You and I can find forgiveness at any time in our lives. Not just in the initial new birth, but at any time we respond and fall on our knees and ask God and beg God for forgiveness, it goes back to the cross. Christ says, I died for him. I shed my blood for him. And that transaction is made right there at the cross every time. There's no other way. So as long as God is God, he cannot overlook sin. As long as God is God, he cannot dismiss lightly those who trample on his holy will. As long as God is God, he cannot wink when men mock his name. The only way he can be a holy God is to exercise his wrath upon evil. God's holiness and his goodness will always be vindicated. And so, so this morning there is no contradiction. Now, I think, I'd like to think quickly about some evidence that reveals the wrath of God to us. Our text is, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Evidence that reveals the wrath of God to us. Some of you have heard this quote before. The um, infamous um, agnostic atheist Bertrand Russell once was asked this question in a debate. But just suppose there is a God, and when you die, you meet him. What are you going to say to him? Bertrand Russell made this comment. He said, I'm going to tell him, you didn't provide me with enough evidence to believe in you. We read that verse in Romans 1, that all the creation, the invisible things of God, can be clearly understood by the visible things of creation. In my own words. There is no lack of evidence. As Apostle Peter said, they are willingly ignorant. Willingly ignorant. 
I read some of the, I enjoy science, I enjoy um, anthropology and archaeology. And they keep finding these things, and the evidence is just mounting week after week. Recently, there was another discovery. And, and they, they say, well, at one, you know, this area should not, never have had these kinds of trees and fossils. But there must have been a lot of high water at one time that maybe washed them there. But they never said the flood. They never would use that, that term. Willingly ignorant. The evidence is mounting week after week of all the discoveries that they have. Whether it's in the, in the, the universe and the new, the new uh, James Webb telescope and what they're seeing in the universe. Evidence, more and more evidence mounting every day. Willingly ignorant. And so there's the creation. Uh, that shows, you know, the, um, the existence of God. And then you think about the wrath of God as, you know, the flood. Is a, is a tremendous evidence of the, of the wrath of God, where finally God says, it is enough, I'm going to destroy this. We have the, uh, the burning, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, it's, uh, it shows you know, the wrath of God against sin. We have a lot of those past dealings with man. I thought of the, um, uh, the account there with Moses and Aaron, and uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who rebelled against Moses there, and Aaron, especially Moses. And uh, God just opened the earth. There was like a big crack opened up underneath them, and they all fell in. It says they went alive into the pit. That's an example of the wrath of God. We have the destruction of Jerusalem. And we talked about this a little bit there, where in the end of Second Chronicles, where... God said it, it got so bad that there is no remedy. This can't be fixed anymore. There's going to be destruction. Turn with me back to Lamentations. I'd just like to read some verses here. We don't often read from the book of Lamentations. But it is a very interesting book. And it's, you can say it's very sad, and it is. But just notice the prophet Jeremiah. Now, this, it, uh, most of Israel, Judah at this time, were marching toward Babylon. They were carried away captive. Daniel would have been among some of those probably in the earlier time. But now they were marching toward Babylon. The city is largely destroyed. The, the temple was burned with fire. And, you know, the place where God's glory was. And he said, uh, you know, here's where, where I dwell among my people. And the, the glorious aspect of that, of that tabernacle. It was all gone, all destroyed. And the one scripture says that every house, every house was touched by this destruction. Now notice Lamentations 2 and verse 1. How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger? The Lord hath swallowed up all the inhabitants of Jacob, and hath not pitied he hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he burned against Jacob with a flaming fire, which devoured round about. He hath bent his bow 
like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye. In the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion, he poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was an enemy. He hath swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds and hath increased in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentations. He hath bodily taken away his tabernacle. That was a temple. As if it were of a garden, like pulling weeds in the garden. And that destroyed his palaces of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feasts and the Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. And hath despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. The Lord hath cast off his altar. He hath abhorred his sanctuary. He hath given up unto the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of the solemn feast. And you can go on reading. Sat. Jeremiah said, the great nation, the people of God, are just laid waste, destroyed. There was nothing wrong with God's anger in doing this. The whole problem was with people that knew what God wanted were repeatedly warned and repeatedly rebelled against changing their ways. Until finally God says, it's enough. And in other words, God said, I told you and I told you and I warned you and I told you what would happen, but you did not change your ways. And finally, I had to destroy the city and the temple, my sanctuary, I tore down. In other words, God is saying, I tore down with my own hands. You can notice what God is looking for in repentance. Just a side note here, chapter 2 and verse 18. Their heart cried unto the Lord, a wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest, let not the apple of thine eyes cease. Arise and cry out in the night, in the beginning of the watches, pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. That's how you find repentance with God. In other words, if we or anyone chooses to forsake the salvation that God offers in this life, you forfeit it in the next If you choose to forfeit, to give up the salvation that God offers in this life, you forfeit it in the next. You give it up in the next. It's very simple math. It's very simple equation. It's a very simple truth. God is simply saying, you don't respond to me now, you lose it then. Is that unfair? Is God unrighteous? No. It's called justice. It's judicial. It's not a temper tantrum in relation to wrath and anger. It's judicial in what God pronounces. And the other interesting thing is it is personal. It is individual that God does it. And it is eternal. Someone has said, 
There will be no one in hell who does not deserve to be there. There will be no one in hell who does not deserve to be there. And there will only be one in heaven that deserves to be there. That's the Lord Jesus. Because really you and I do not deserve to be there. In salvation, in salvation, God does far more in forgiveness and restoration and the adoption to his family than what you and I deserve. It's a gift. It's a gift. God is saying, here's the gift of salvation that I, that I extend. And by following me and dedicating your life to me and, and, and living the life that I want you to live, this is what I'm going to give you. Think of it this way. It is no wonder that Revelation talks about the righteous there in glory.